This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no idea what this book really says, if we're honest. This is the Iarga episode. So, there's been something of a recurring theme happening in some of our episodes, going all the way back to the beginning. And that recurring theme is the question of the accuracy of various flying saucer texts, particularly those that have been translated from other languages into English, and even more particularly, the problem of the increasing unavailability of original copies of these books. There are scanned versions on the internet or sometimes sold semi-fraudulently or entirely fraudulently through print-on-demand services. You may recall that we ran into this a little bit when looking at the um, Woody Derenberger story, uh, his uh, Visitors from Lanulos book. I had the original from Interlibrary Loan and the version being sold on Amazon, and there were significant differences. And recently, um, his daughter, Tanya, who you may remember me discussing and who appeared in the second season of Hellier, has posted on Facebook in, in a, a I can't remember exactly which group I saw it in, that she is not happy with some of the changes that were made to her father's book. Um, you may recall that I had asked her about this, or I'm sorry, one of our investigators had asked her about this um, back when we were producing that episode and she was unaware of it. So this is an issue that's been going on for some time. There are some names that circulate as being problematic here. Um, we're not going to go into all of them, but we are going to look at Wendell Stevens or Wendell Stevens. I'm not sure. I'll just call him Stevens. And in particular, a book called UFO Contact from Iarga. It's a weird contactee story and it's Dutch. It's not weird because it's from the Netherlands. It would be weird anywhere. Onward. So, I'd been planning to do an episode on Stefan Denerda's Iarga contacts for a while. And when I started working on this episode and dug into things, I found some interesting things about the text or translations of the text or something. This is the problem with Google. Sometimes it leads you to places that don't know as much as they think they know. So, I was Googling around about the Iarga contacts and, and this book, and it led me to the Twitter account of somebody who, in the recent past, has been active on Twitter on UFO subjects, and this person was discussing the Iarga contacts and said they had a link to a translation that was better than the most available English translation, which is um, Wendell Stevens's one that was published in the early 1980s. I clicked on the link and I found that it had this introduction. Here's a book where aliens explain how to create a stable world. It's a book from 1969 and happened in Holland called Bad Attempt at Reading Dutch, Redacted, by Stefan de Nerde. On the internet, there's a translated version with weird religious things added and entire chapters missing. 
I corrected this version with the original Dutch version next to it. There might still be some grammar mistakes in it. Someone should publish an official English version and make this book famous. It's weird how there's books with all the answers and no one knows them. And indeed, on Twitter, talking about this copy of the book, uh, this person talked about how this was a copy of the book that had had um, a new translation done of it um, and that things were corrected from the Wendell Stevens version, as I said, and that a lot of religious stuff, their words, had been taken out of it. So looking at this text, it had no name of a translator, no information at all. So I uh, messaged the person and asked if they had any details. Since they did not respond to me, I um, will not uh, mention their name here since they clearly don't want to be identified with the fact that they clearly believe that what we're about to talk about is the truth about extraterrestrials or at least about human civilization or alien civilization or something. I decided to inquire from some inquire of rather somebody who might know more about this, and that was Theo Paymons or Mimizon, M-E-M-I-Z-O-N, on Twitter. Uh, Theo lives in the Netherlands and uh, helped me out with some information about this book, the original and, and English translations that are available. Um, the info is from George Eberhardt's uh, bibliography of contactee writings. So what we have, um, based on the info Theo gave me, is that um, the first English translation was called Operation Survival Earth and was translated by Jim Lodge. It was published by Pocket Books in 1977. The original book um, is something in, in Dutch that I don't even dare to pronounce. Uh, it was, was published in 1969. Then there was the 1982 book, UFO Contact from Planet Iarga, a report of the investigation, published by the UFO Photo Archives, which is Wendell Stevens's weird name for his publishing company. So I started to compare the version that I'd found from the Twitter person to the Wendell Stevens version. And as we're going to see a little bit, we're not going to do a point by point comparison because we hit a point where it's pretty clear what has probably been going on. So we've got two copies here, or I have. I don't have the pocketbooks version from the 70s. We have the Wendell Stevens version, which is a scanned one that was uh, on the internet. Um, just an aside, and I think this might have come up during the uh, previous time we looked at uh, some Wendell Stevens material. Um, the versions that are available for purchase on Amazon for Kindle are so badly put together that often Amazon ends up having to pull them. They are not actual ebooks. They are simply scans of the print pages in many cases, like combined into the format that goes on a Kindle. And um, they're so bad that if you report it, Amazon will take it down and in some cases take it off of your Kindle. So one copy is the as thoroughly complete as possible Wendell Stevens translation. And the other is this mystery document from Twitter, which is probably not the other authorized English translation. Um, it's a mystery, but we will be examining that mystery at the same time we're looking at the Iarga contacts. So I think the best way to begin 
is by looking at Wendell Stevens's introduction to his translation, where he discusses uh, sort of the background of uh, Steph, as we will come to know him in the course of the book. This story was first published in Dutch by Anke Hermes of Deventer, Netherlands in 1969 and has gone through 11 editions and 40,000 hardbound copies in Dutch since then. It has been published as science fiction up to now because the publisher originally felt that this story would not sell as fact. Nevertheless, it is a true account of real events, and we are publishing it as such here for the first time, together with the very extensive follow-on data as the contacts continued right up to the present time. We have investigated this case extensively over the past four years, and conclude that the facts do in reality verify and support the story. The witness is a very well-educated and highly articulate master mechanical engineer, and an architectural artist as well. A rare combination ideally suited for this contact if the alien visitors wanted their information to be understood and presented with any degree of accuracy. The witness is also a well-known multinational industrialist in Europe, whose real name would be immediately recognized. He is the owner of several companies doing international business. To preserve his identity, in order to protect his private life, we are using a pseudonym given him by the extraterrestrials themselves. They refer to him as Steph van den Erde, Steph of the Earth, from which Stefan Denerde was derived. When I first met this man, I was surprised by his size. He is a big man, about six foot four inches tall, and weighing perhaps 220 to 230 pounds. We'll return to the issue of it being published as science fiction initially as we get to the end of the uh, episode. But what do we know about about Steph? He's uh, he's wealthy. He's wealthy and well-known enough that nobody needs to know who he is. So here's a little bit more about Steph from Wendell Stevens. He dresses conservatively in expensive business suits and is very courteous and polite. He is mild-mannered and introspective by nature and speaks with almost perfect economy of words. He says what he means and means what he says. In discussions, he is not given to elaboration and volunteers little information by himself. He answers questions forthrightly, directly, and honestly, and looks one right in the eye as he speaks. He is not known to tell fictitious stories, but is considered to be a model of truthfulness and integrity. He lives in an upper-class, quiet neighborhood in a professional suburb of Den Haag. His home, on a beautiful tree-lined street, looks to have $150,000 to $200,000 value and is well-maintained and beautifully landscaped. It faces a park reserve across the street from him. The neighborhood looks scrubbed clean. This man was not a UFO buff and has no collection of UFO books and journals. He does not lecture or talk on his experience publicly or privately. He does not write articles on it or give interviews. He did not believe in the phenomenon and had gone to no pains to evaluate it before his own contact. He still does not believe in UFOs as such. I love the fairly specific valuation in American dollars of Steph's house in, you know, Den Haag, which is, that's pretty amazing. It's, it's pretty impressive. So again, you know, why is he credible? Well, people say he's not a liar and man, this guy's rich, you know, he's clearly not doing this for the money. He's not doing it for publicity. Why else would he, um, would he tell this story? Why else would he share this information if not that it was true and that he had a compelling need to share this information? So now let's take a look at the encounter itself. And, and here we are going to do some comparisons between the two versions. This is the very beginning of chapter one entitled Confrontation. This is the, um, this is the translation from Wendell Stevens. 
Iarga. I can talk about it now. The fascinating dusky green planet with its somber pink sky is no dream, but just a moment. I must first sort out the mass of information gained during my astounding experiences and relate it logically and coherently. I need to do this for myself as well. Any explanation of my chaotic memories may help me to become my old self again. It is difficult for me to remember the man I used to be. How I felt that beautiful summer evening on board my yacht that drifted like a huge white swan on the windless waters of the Oosterscheld, an art of the sea in the southwestern delta of the Netherlands. Yes, an art of the sea. Pay attention. This becomes important. Now, here's the same section from the version that I found circulated on Twitter. Who asks me about Iarga? I shall show the way. The fascinating dusky green planet with somber pink sky is no dream, but just a moment. I must first sort out the massive information gained during my astounding experiences and relate it logically and coherently. I need to do this for myself as well. Any explanation of my chaotic memories may help me to become my old self again. It is difficult for me to remember the man I used to be, how I felt that beautiful summer evening on board my yacht that drifted like a huge white swan on the windless waters of the Oosterscheld, an art of the sea in the southwestern delta of the Netherlands. So here's the thing. An art of the sea does not make sense. A part of the sea does make sense. An art of the sea only makes sense as a typographical error, either that is there in Stevens's original, or that was introduced during the scanning and OCRing and you know process of putting it online. In any case, an art of the sea doesn't make nearly as much sense as a part of the sea would, right? So if the Twitter version is a new translation, why would that same error be there? Maybe maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's it's just one thing. It's maybe it's just one weird thing. Maybe it's my imagination that their way that Stevens's version is phrased would somebody translating the original from Dutch to English from scratch would not, you know, probably phrase things exactly that same way. I don't know. I'm I'm cynical. So at this point the story begins. Um Young boy, um, Stefan's son on the on the on the yacht uh, says the compass is broken, and so the the needle is is messed up. There's something magnetic affecting it, and so he decides with his family on the yacht to uh, investigate this to try to figure out what's going on. It gets dark, and as they're sailing through or yachting through the darkness um, of the Oosterschelt, when a bright white searchlight shines directly in his eyes from directly in front of the bow of his ship. Is anyone there? I yelled over the water. In answer, the light went out, but no reply. Miriam came on deck, and behind her stood the children, wide-eyed with fear. Look, there, that flat thing in the water. It looked like the hull of an overturned ship or pontoon, but we were at least 30 feet away and couldn't possibly have hit it, whatever it was. Is anyone there? I called a second time. The searchlight flashed on again. The strangely small beam of light swept over the water and cast a cold glare on the side of the chalk. I caught my breath. Floating on the incoming tide was a body, face down, apparently dead. The actions that followed were carried out at nerve-wracking speed. There was only one thought in my mind. To do something quickly, 
before the body drifted away into the darkness. The Twitter version is exactly the same except for the very end. There was only one thought in my mind, to do something quickly before the body drifted away into the dark waters. Maybe it's the way Dutch works, I don't know, but I'm not sure darkness and dark waters would be two different translations somebody would get from the original Dutch. So Steph sees a shape in the water. He thinks it might be a body. He thinks it might be somebody who needs to be rescued from the water. He jumps into the water and and struggles to get the body back in. Just then, an alarm bell began to sound somewhere in the back of my mind. What kind of a man was this? He was wearing a kind of metallic suit, and around his head was a rubbery ball which reflected the blue light so strongly that I was unable to see his face. I began to think about astronauts, but how on earth did he come to be in the Oosterschelt? I started the outboard motor and began slowly back towards the chalk, but what now? What should I do with this strange burden beside me? Why had I gone to all this trouble? My indecision grew by the minute. The Twitter version, again, is largely similar, but with some interesting differences. Just then, the alarms went off in my mind. What kind of man was this? He was wearing a kind of hard, metallic suit that kept him afloat. Around his head was a kind of flexible ball which reflected the blue light so strongly I was unable to see his face. I began to think about astronauts, but how would they get into the Oosterschelt? I started the outboard motor and began slowly back toward the chalk, dragging the victim alongside the boat. But what now? What should I do with this strange burden beside me? Was this even a human? Why had I gone to all this trouble? My confusion grew by the minute. Steph continues to carry out the rescue of this of this creature, and then something even more amazing happens. There was suddenly a sea of light, a great diffused light under the surface of the water. A sound made me turn toward the strange object in the water, and I saw a dark shape wading quickly toward me. It was a perfect copy of the being I had fished out of the water, with the same shiny metallic suit and a transparent ball around its head. Step by step, it came closer, and I instinctively grabbed the boat hook to defend myself. He held out an arm in a friendly gesture and turned his face toward me. I sprang back as though bitten by a snake. A wild fear cut off my breath. It was a nightmare. A terrible, indescribable feeling took hold of me. The being in front of me was not human. An animal-like face with large, square pupils in the eyes, eyes which were both hypnotic and self-assured. It struck me like a thunderbolt. Here I stood, facing an alien being from a race more intelligent than my own. But why was I still so afraid? I cannot explain. If it had been a gorilla, for example, then I would have quickly sprung on board my ship and put up a fight with the boat hook to prevent the animal from coming on board. There would have been no time for the fear that came from the feeling of helplessness in recognition of his superiority. So now let's compare this one last time to the Twitter version. The searchlight dimmed and from the middle of the plateau came a dark figure rushing on with sharp and quick tripping steps. He jumped into the water and in the full light he waded toward me. It was a perfect copy of the being I had fished out of the water, with the same shiny metallic suit and a transparent ball around its head. Step by step, it came closer. Instinctively, I waved the boat hook defensively into the air. He raised his arm with a calming gesture and turned his face towards me. I sprang back as though bitten by a snake. A wild fear cut off my breath. It was a nightmare. A terrible, indescribable feeling took hold of me. The being in front of me was not human. An animal-like face with a proud, aggressive expression the eyes with large square pupils which were both hypnotic and self-assured. His entire presence spoke superiority. 
Like rolling thunder, I started to realize I was standing unprotected facing a different extraterrestrial intelligent race. All right, so that's the last of the comparisons we'll be doing between the two versions for this reason. Now, what I suspected earlier was maybe a, a spelling error based on what I suspect was an OCR misinterpretation that didn't get corrected in proofreading. Maybe there's room for wiggling, which by which I mean there's wiggle room there. But uh, here in this section, and you wouldn't be able to hear it in the uh, in in the audio version. But if you were to look at the texts that I have found, you'll notice that in the phrase, prevent the animal from coming on board, on is followed by an apostrophe, sort of a a random apostrophe, the kind of thing you get when there's a mark on the page and you scan it and you OCR it, the software sort of says, oh, an apostrophe, I'll put that there. This was in Wendell Stevens's version, the same error on apostrophe space board was in the, in sarcasm quotes, translated version that um, UFO person put up on Twitter. So sort of spelling this out, if this is a translation, why would it have the same errant apostrophe in the same place as the scanned HTML Wendell Stevens version? The conclusion, the Twitter version is not really a new translation and is likely not the initial 1970s translation. It's probably the Wendell Stevens translation with some phrasing changed, and as we're going to see, a whole bunch like the second half excised out. So for our purposes, we're going to continue with the Stevens version in light of this damning evidence of literary chicanery. Next time, it's been a while, so we're going to do a listener question and answer. So ask me any questions you want. Um, I'll answer them. So you can send questions to thesaucerlife at gmail.com, Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, Uh, Facebook. I think you search for the Saucer Life podcast and you can find me on Facebook. Um, Messages through any of those means would be just fine. And so whatever questions we get over the next couple weeks, we'll be able to sort of collate and answer. And if we don't get any, then I'll just make some up and you'll never know. So uh, we also have during our little our little uh, mid episode break here, an update from a listener about the topic of our episode uh, a few weeks ago about Sherry Schreiner. And uh, this is listener, uh, listener John. And John, uh, let me know that He is a native of Carrollton, Ohio, which is uh, Sherry Schreiner's HQ. And uh, listener John asked his father about Sherry. Um, His father didn't know about her, but a friend of his did and said, quote, she was crazy. Listener John writes, imagine my excitement when I saw an episode of The Saucer Life devoted to her. According to my father's friend, when she passed away, her daughter kept the website up and running because it generates so much money. Apparently, the Oregon hockey pucks are a big seller, among other things, end quote. Thank you for that update, John. I had a feeling that somebody was keeping the website going. I would have had my money on one of her followers, although her daughter might fit into that category as well. Um, I'm resisting the urge to find out more about the daughter because I do not want to get involved any deeply in any personal, any deeply, any more deeply in any personal way with anybody connected to this. But thank you so much, John, for that update. 
previous episodes and ways to support the show uh, with your generous gifts are available at saucerlife.com as well as the link in the show notes. We always appreciate listeners who have donated to the past in the show, helping defray our costs, helping to support what we do here and what we hope entertains us or entertains you. It entertains us, but hopefully it entertains you. You can also contact us by post at Chizo Media, PO Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. Back to Iarga. All right, so we're back with Steph, and he and his family are on the yacht in the Oosterschalt, Schalt, Oosterschalt, and uh, there is a sinister-looking thing in the water, and he is going to check it out. He's already pulled a being from the water. He's been confronted by a similar being, sort of conscious, and now he is looking at something else. With a flashlight in one hand and a boat hook in the other, I stood on deck and let the beam of light play over the platform. It lay just above the surface of the water, a sinister-looking dark gray thing. Its diameter was about the same as the length of our ship, certainly fifty feet. It was resting on a ledge which reflected the light so strongly that it looked like glass. In the middle was a pillar, slightly twisted, about six feet wide and eight feet high. The total size of the thing surprised me. I knew what was under the water. I could walk at least the length of a swimming pool without falling off the edge. Could this be one of the much-talked-about flying saucers? Were they really so huge, and could they also operate underwater? I turned the flashlight out and began systematically probing around the ship with the boat hook, in front by the bow about two feet and aft about four feet. It was strange that each time I had to use force to pull the boat hook off the bottom, as though something were holding it. Suddenly, something opens up, a hatch opens up, and beings come out. He says there are two figures dressed in the familiar spacesuits who pulled out some objects after them which were joined by cables or wires. He said their movements were like figures in an old-time silent film, fast and jerky, and he was concerned at what might happen. He felt some danger. They stood on the platform and, with one hand against their ball-shaped helmets at about the height where their foreheads would be, made slow, respectful bowing movements in my direction. I understood. What a relief. It was a greeting. A friendly, respectful greeting. With quick, short paces, they walked to the edge of the platform, where the bowing was repeated and emphasized, and then they stood like statues in the light of my flashlight. A strange and dramatic scene. On the Oosterschelt, a man is confronted with an alien intelligence— but the man was poorly prepared for the meeting. He was nothing more than a sailor in difficulty who could feel his legs trembling in his wet clothes. The two figures in front of me were about five feet tall, and from a distance looked deceptively human, arms, head, and legs all in their proper places. But their legs were shorter than ours, so that their arms reached down to their knees. Their metallic costumes were smooth and seamless. Only by the shoulders and elbows were folds to be seen. The short, heavy legs ended in broad feet that also stuck out behind, and the front part of their footwear was split in the middle. The hands were covered by supple, ribbed gloves. These were different from ours, too, in that not only the thumb, but also the second finger was enclosed. They were heavy, claw-like hands. A broad, gold-colored belt around each of their middles, sewn with motifs and tools, was particularly noticeable, one piece of which was clearly a hammer with a sharp, striking edge. And on their right side was something that vaguely resembled a pistol. A kind of drum wound with thin glistening thread rested on the middle of their stomachs. The remainder of their equipment was unknown to me. I gained the impression of immense physical strength, not only from their long, heavy arms and enormous shoulders, but also from their quick movements. 
The round ornaments around their heads were less transparent than I had originally thought. When the beam from my flashlight fell on them, they changed into glistening Christmas tree balls, and only with more indirect light was it possible to vaguely make out their heads. They stand there staring at each other for a while, and and finally uh, the silence is broken, and he's asked if he understands English, and he, he freaks out that they can speak English or communicate in any way, and they thank him for rescuing their crew member, and they explain they come from another solar system, and he is completely, Steph is completely freaked out by all this. Um, he asks them questions about their ship, and he finds out that uh, while the Iargans, as we'll come to know them, are, are not more intelligent than humans, they are more advanced and more developed. He asks, like most contactees do, why don't uh, why don't the aliens help humanity more? This would be what they call a breach of nature, but to help sort of prove that they are who they are or, or sort of demonstrate their advanced nature, they give him a block of um, metal, like a little one square inch cube of metal or one cubic inch cube of metal that is, uh, quote, many times stronger than your best steel and only half as heavy. So, titanium uh, but it also has a superconductive structure so so current can flow through it um, in some ways but only in one direction so it's it's you can make electronics with it um, apparently but Steph does ask if the aliens can help them with some technological issues he says he wants to know what the spacecraft looks like and more importantly how it's powered you disappoint us with this question about technical knowledge The most dangerous natural law governing the development of an intelligent people states a highly technological society liquidates all discrimination or self-destructs. To supply technical information to a people like yourselves is a serious crime against the cosmic laws. It increases the risk of ruination. The last thing you need is technological information to increase the gap between your intellectual development and your almost non-existent social development. Carry on playing with your Mars probes for the moment as half of your world's population lives in poverty and hunger. The only information you need lies in the field of societal standards. So here, what we see is something we're going to see a little bit more of as we go through the story of Steph and the Iargans, and that is that Steph, unlike some contactees, does not arrive on the spaceship with his cosmically-minded philosophical ideas preformed. He is very much a pretty typical... 1960s upper class or upper middle class professional European wealthy person. He wants the technology. He's he's irritated that he can't have the technology. He asks, well, when do you think you can give us this information? Well, the aliens say, you're not advanced enough. You haven't reached the minimum level of social stability. Why? Well, a big reason is economic inequality. Another big reason is racial discrimination and racism more generally. So these are things that are not necessarily um, unique about contact tales. It's sort of saying that these things are wrong with humanity. And, and once humanity overcomes these things, um, they will be in a position to approve, improve. But what's different is, is Steph in a lot of ways says, well, yeah, Earth has problems, but Hey, every place has problems and things are better than they used to be. And so he he gradually gets persuaded about the need for humanity to change its ways. So he does have an opportunity to go aboard their spaceship. His wife is not 
really happy about this. Um, she says, please don't go. Something as alien as that can only spell trouble for us all, which seems a bit, uh, a bit understated. Oh, honey, you're going on the alien spaceship, huh? Well, that's going to be trouble. Now, he does acknowledge that she has a point. He says, quote, she was right, of course. There was something wrong about entering this thing. But even the latent fear from last evening and the leaden feeling in my stomach brought on by the sight of this forbidding platform were not enough to hold me back, end quote. So he goes onto the ship and he climbs down a ladder, which is a pole with sort of steps on either side. So it's, it's kind of a dangerous, uh, dangerous ladder. It gets into the ship and this is what he sees. Once below, I cast my eyes around the room. Unimaginably complicated equipment lined the walls and the ceiling. The only things that were vaguely familiar were huge reels and drums, wound with every possible size of cable and pipe. In the floors was a metal door that looked remarkably earthly, with a round knob in the middle over which I nearly stumbled. In one corner stood a kind of desk with rows of knobs, and above, a panoramic screen about five feet long and three feet high that glowed with a soft green fluorescent light. Behind the desk stood a strangely normal-looking chair, with a metal frame and leather upholstery. He then hears a voice. The voice invited me to sit and explained that the seat had unlimited possibilities for adjustment, but that certain instructions from the voice would be necessary before I could be comfortably seated. Yes, thank you. What happens now? Introductions would seem to be the best way to start. Will you answer a few questions? Uh, Yes, of course. How should we address you? Call me Steph. All right, Steph. The language we speak is not your own language, although it seems to be. It is the language of all living species in this universe. Even a plant or animal will understand it. This language was spoken on Earth before the Babylonian confusion of tongues. You don't hear words, but sounds that are directly reflected by your emotional structure, the life field. Therefore, don't try to understand words, but listen to the reflections of your soul. Is that a kind of thought transference? Not exactly, but you can compare it with that. I understand. How old are you? I'm 43. Are you in good health? Yes, perfect. Have you a high social function? High? What do you mean by high? I'm the director of a business with a few hundred employees. So you are a representative of the directing class of the West Block? I don't quite understand the question. What do you mean by West Block? Let us ask then, are you a supporter of a free economy? Yes, without a doubt. Now it is your turn. Would you perhaps like to see us from close up? Steph mentally prepares himself, and then he sees them. And he realizes that their eyes have a hypnotic effect. They have large rectangular pupils. And he says they're, quote, the thoughtful, peaceful eyes of deep philosophical thinkers that were studying me with quizzical friendliness, end quote. He looks around the spaceship. It seems like a spaceship. It's got control panels and and things like that. It's very sort of science fiction-y sounding. And the Iargans are aliens in a sense that is very alien. They've got uh, they got thick muscles and um, thin skin. He says the the muscle tissue seemed like solid rubber, and the the skin sort of was thinner and, and followed sort of the the contours of the of these large you know thick solid muscles more closely than than human muscles do. They've got no hair on their skin, and their skin is sort of shiny. Uh, the eyes or the skin sort of 
I guess it's sort of color changing. It's, it's iridescent, sort of changes color as they move and shift around. So he talks to them about their about their society, about the the way that that everybody sort of raises children in common in some ways. And then they talk a little bit about the. Um, I'm compressing here because this is fairly wordy. They talk about the social structure and their efforts to build a socially cohesive society. And what Steph learns is that despite the huge population of the planet Iarga, there is very, and and the very high population density, they have a very just society. Whereas increasing population and, and population density on earth tended this is a very sort of late 1960s issue to be talking about, uh, urban population booms and, and, and sort of human population booms and population density and the, the social problems caused by that. On Earth, increased population density tends to cause significant social and economic problems here on Earth. But the Iargans don't seem to have a problem with population density like Earth does, even with a, a population density in their cities of, of 30, 40, 50 times higher than what Steph is used to seeing in his native Netherlands. So on top of all this, they've got, you know, in addition to larger cities with, or smaller cities rather, with much larger populations, they've got an ethical framework around which they've built their society and their larger civilization. What we needed to create a high level of culture were three things, freedom, justice, and efficiency. We will explain these concepts one at a time, beginning with the last, efficiency. You are shocked by the size of our population, but the space surprises you. Strange, eh? It is not so strange when you realize that you were not shocked by the number of people, but by the space that is left over in what to you is a ridiculously overpopulated world. You are shocked by our efficiency. To us, it is the most normal thing in the world because without this concept, we simply could not exist. Without efficiency, our world would immediately collapse. You will continually come up against this concept in our explanations, because we must make it clear to you how carefully each of these three concepts, freedom, justice, and efficiency, we had to employ to reach the level of civilization that can be called stable. Also, justice is a condition for efficiency. For example, if houses play a part in showing a difference in status between people, then justice fails. And efficiency in a setting such as this is impossible. It demands, therefore, a more social way of life. In addition to efficiency, um, you also have the concept of justice. And in this somewhat longer uh, segment, Steph talks about this and, and relates his understanding of their, uh, their system of justice, which is tied to efficiency and the other things as well. I also began to understand a little of something else, and that was the justice they were always talking about. Although I had only just begun to become acquainted with this distant culture, I understood that everyone here had equal rights. They lived in the same houses, rode in the same cars, and stepped into the same trains. They were neither rich nor poor. There was no separation between nationalities, races, or colors. This must be a universally governed planet, but seemingly so strictly governed that everything was streamlined and standardized. What a terrible thought! I had no idea then that my horror at the thought of such monotony was soon to change into longing. I began to wonder what the millions of miles of railroad must have cost. It was certainly a triumph of engineering. Can you give me some idea of what such a transport system costs? That is difficult. We know roughly what a dollar represents in production ability, but to translate that into the cost of a transport system, well, we can only guess. For one billion dollars, you would not get much farther than three miles. 
Can't it be done for less? Naturally. But then we would have to make concessions with quality, and that is not our method of working. Such a system can only exist if it is built to last for centuries. Otherwise, we would constantly be repairing it. We'd never be able to afford such quality. You see it in front of you. What you need is not a vault full of banknotes, but production capacity. Only a society with a completely efficient economic system can realize such things for itself. But can all this be compared to the communist system that we have on Earth? Our cosmic universal economic system can be compared to both communism and the capitalist Western economy. One can also say that our cosmic economics can't be compared with either. If we don't have the system on Earth, how can you call it universal? It is only through this system that a race can achieve a cultural level of social stability, and from there onward toward immortality. It is the cosmic condition, based on natural laws. What's your definition of culture, then, exactly? I'm beginning to think that we define the word differently. That is a very important question, Steph. Culture is the measure through which a society caters to the least fortunate man. The measure in which the sick, invalid, old, or poor people are taken care of. In short, the measure of collective unselfishness. But what has this got to do with immortality? Just this, that unselfishness makes an intelligent race immortal. But before you can understand this, you will first have to climb the ladder with us to the misty heights of cosmic integration. Steph goes on to comment that um, their economic system is almost sounding like a religion. And they say, well, you're, you're almost there, but the word religion is not well chosen, but something like it. So it, 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 in this section of the book, um, it doesn't go into religion much. It's, it stays mostly in terms of, of political and social and economic systems. And speaking of their economic systems, it's very confusing and very boring to try to understand. You heard their discussion of the super high-speed train system that they have. You know, a billion dollars, you maybe could go three miles. And that's like a billion dollars in you know the mid-1960s or whatever. So that's that's weird, right? So... The way their economics works, there's no money, but everybody needs to have equitable access to everything. So instead of buying things, you simply have your acquisition of it recorded somewhere to track whether or not people are getting equal amounts of things. It sounds like, as I read it, and I don't understand earthly economics, much less interplanetary economics, it sounds a lot like... um, Gabriel Green's prior choice economics from our Space Age candidate episode. So that's um, that's something that's that's kind of uh, kind of interesting. It, it sort of goes on like this. Uh, the rest of the book it talks about um, the the technology, the flying saucers, and it's it's very much like we manipulate gravity in various ways and, and sort of things like that. But as we get to the end of the book, as we close in on the end of the book, what's interesting is we sort of come around full circle to this this idea of the book being published as fiction rather than nonfiction or science fiction rather rather than nonfiction that uh, editor translator Wendell Stevens talked about in his introduction and this ties in to the Iargan's uh, notions of um, the cosmic law and non-interference and sort of Star Trekky sounding prime directive stuff. The first law of interplanetary contacts is that free will of a cosmic race may never be infringed. Pure knowledge does not infringe the freedom unless we are dealing with a race that has not yet made its choice as we are here. Let us begin with the first observation. Knowledge does not infringe freedom. This means that we are permitted to plant knowledge and nothing more than that. We may never exert any kind of pressure to make you do anything with this knowledge. 
This is why we tell you that the knowledge is planted in the collective consciousness of man. Sooner or later it must come to the surface. You have no obligations at all. You are free. The second observation causes greater problems. Knowledge can influence the freedom of choice of an ignorant race, as we have already explained. And certainly when this knowledge is presented with authority, or by one means or the other, it can be made indisputable. This is why you must never try to prove our existence, and the proof of the existence of God may only be used when all other efforts to publish have failed. For the life of me, I could not find their proof of the existence of God anywhere previous. I don't know if the copy that I got a hold of on the internet was incomplete in some way or something, but I, I just couldn't find it. So what happens if humans do choose to start down this path of enlightenment? What happens? What's basically what's in it for us? When it is obvious that you have chosen of your own free will, we will be prepared to give you a few hints. The first thing you must do is to control the impact of your publication to prevent hysteria and fanaticism. You can only accomplish this by being mysterious about the source of your information. We know that you have made photos of our navigation dome, and you must destroy them. The block of metal which we offered you at the beginning of our conversation cannot be given to anyone. If, however, you do manage to find some proof of our existence, things will get out of hand, and you will be destroyed by the hysteria of mankind. Write your book in clear science fiction style, so that it cannot be used as irrefutable logic. You must leave people free to believe or not as they choose. If anyone should ask you if it really happened, you must deny it and say that it is pure imagination. So not only can you not reveal the truth of what you have found, you have to present it as fiction, but if anybody asks you about it, you have to lie, which doesn't sound very healthy. So that brings the book to, or this part of the book to a conclusion and uh, sort of connected to those, those previous clips you heard, Wendell Stevens has this to say in closing. The exact date and time of this first contact event are in fact known, as well as other evidential support. There are other witnesses and there's material evidence supporting the story. But in keeping with the contactee's solemn promise never to try to prove the reality of the story or the actual existence of the Iargans, for very good reason, we have chosen not to reveal it. Wendell C. Stevens. Oh, we've got proof. we got all kinds of proof that this happened and is still ongoing, still happening. But like you heard, folks, the Iargans won't let us show you the proof. We're not allowed to. So sorry, but you're just going to have to take it on faith that we have that proof. Now, this point is where the original Iarga contact book ended. So what follows in the Wendell Stevens version is supposedly information that has brought things up to date after that initial contact. Now, this is what the Twitter version uh, mostly pretty much just chopped out. And I can kind of see why, not because I, I feel that it undermines the fundamental truth of the Iargan way of life or whatever, um, but because it just doesn't feel the same. It's very religious, very mythological. Um, it's uh, This might be Wendell Stevens's editing. It shares a lot of terminology and some characters and some concepts with things that were in Stevens's contact from the Pleiades books, which were his editions of the Billy Meyer saga. So there might have been some 
cross-contamination there in some way. Uh, this is a great place to mention that, no, we are not doing a Billy Meyer episode. We will probably never do a Billy Meyer episode. I like a quiet, sedate life, and um, saying things about Billy Meyer uh, tends to have unpleasant people bombard you with emails. So I'm going to avoid Billy Meyer also because I, there is, I'm not sure if there's anything I could say about Billy Meyer that hasn't already been said. Uh, there's a lot of Billy Meyer stuff out there. So anyway, there's, there seems to be some blend of things going on there. So here's the thing with contact from Iarga. It's a different sort of contactee book in that the contactee is sort of persuaded that his way of viewing things is wrong and the alien's way of viewing things is right. Generally, not always, but generally, what you have is a contactee like George Adamski, who's, who's pretty much already tuned in to the way the cosmic system works, or someone like Truman Bethram, who really doesn't have much of an idea at all about any of this stuff and is sort of, sort of taught... Um, sort of taught up from being a, a blank slate. Here we see the persuasive power, not of alien technology, but of alien culture and alien philosophy and alien ethics and its applicability to the struggles, race, economic inequality, overpopulation that humans were suffering from in the uh, 1960s. And um, I haven't checked the news today. And I'm pretty sure we're still dealing with in one way or another. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Theo Paymans for his assistance in research for this episode. Music and special sounds are by the Chizo Media Radiophonic Workshop. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time. Keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you and the skies are watching you. Send in questions for our listener Q&A episode next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>